All right, well, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, welcome to Trailhead Church. We're going to be continuing our series called um, Unshaken, a look in Philippians chapter 4. So let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and flip over to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the seat in front of you. If you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to be going to page 982. Page 982. If you don't own a Bible, again, I want to invite you to take that one as our gift to you. We would love to put the Word of God into your hands so that you can continue to read it and uh, engage it over the course of the week. All right, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. All right, there's an incredible promise at the heart of our passage that we've kind of been over the last couple of weeks digging into, right? It's actually a command, uh, an impossible command, but God doesn't command us to do anything he doesn't equip us to do. And so if he commands it, that means he equips it. And so instead of simply seeing this as a command to be obeyed, I see it as a promise to take hold of, an invitation um, to a new way of life that will reduce the anxiety of our souls, that will stop us from simply being plagued by the urgencies of our lives and our cultures and our hearts and instead increase our experience of peace and joy. Even when the world around you is shaking and unsettled, there's a peace that surpasses understanding. That's, that's what it says in uh, verse 7, right? That there was a peace that surpasses understanding. That means that it's a peace that doesn't come from understandable places, right? Most of us expect our peace to come from, from security or the increasing of security. If I, could just, if I could just get this area of my life stable, then I would have peace, right? Or, or from a lack of conflict in our families or in our friendships or in our workplace. If we could just gain some measure of ease in our lives, then I would have peace, right? Those are all reasonable explanations to experience peace in your, in your life. But this passage is promising a peace that is from an unreasonable place. A peace that doesn't come from reasonable things. A peace that doesn't come from all the things that we normally expect them to come from. So if we're going to get this peace, we're going to have to come to see that the battle for it is primarily spiritual, not political, not economic, not relational, that this is a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that comes in our hearts, not from outside of our hearts, not from the streets or from Facebook. So that means that the primary change that needs to take place needs to take place in us, not out there. Okay, that's, it's a change that needs to take place in here, not out there. And that means we're going to have to go to battle. 
with our own hearts if we want to take hold of this promise. I heard Colin Powell interviewed once. Colin Powell is a retired four-star general. He's somebody who knows something about warfare. And he was talking about lessons for life you can take from the battlefield. And uh, there was one that really stuck with me. He was talking about these things called force multipliers. A force multiplier is something that is around you, that is natural to the environment, that you can take advantage of, that will increase the effectiveness of your strength and decrease the vulnerability of your weakness. So a force multiplier, something that is natural in the environment that will increase your strength and, and, and make your weakness minimized, right? It could be a hill, right? A small group of soldiers on top of a hill can hold off a much larger force of soldiers trying to come up the hill. That's a force multiplier. Simply by being at the top of the hill, their strength is maximized and their weakness is minimized, right? It could come from being in a ravine. Some of you back in the day might have seen the movie 300, Right? About 300 Spartans holding off 10,000s of the, the Persian hordes. Right? How'd they do it? Well, they found a ravine. And when they got into this ravine, it didn't matter how many soldiers were coming at them, only a few hundred could come at a time. And so they were able to, to use their environment to maximize their strength and minimize their weakness. So a force multiplier can be anything. It can be something as simple as a line of trees. It can be as simple as something as, as, as a river that runs through a field. Anything that will make the most of your effort. Here's the thing, you guys. People who pay attention to force multipliers generally win. People who pay attention to force multipliers tend to increase their strength, maximize their strength, and minimize their weakness. Today I want to talk to you about one of the most important force multipliers in the Christian life. And that's the force multiplier of gratitude. If we're going to have any hope of battling the anxiety of this age, we are going to have to learn to fight from a posture of gratitude. In the last two weeks, we've been sitting, sitting, sitting. We've been sitting in verses five and six, uh, unpacking uh, a sentence here and a phrase there. Okay, so so the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. To God, right? So the first week we took a look at that idea that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Hokurios engus, right? That, that He is not distant or uninterested or absent. He's imminent. He is present. God is drawn near to us in the person of Christ. So it's not just that He is physically present, it's that He's present to bless. He's interested. He's expressed and demonstrated His love and His yearning for relationship. God is near. Last week, we looked at the idea of prayer, right? Because God drew near to us in Christ, we can draw near to Him in prayer. It's as simple as turning the conversations we have with ourselves in our heads into conversations we have with God. It's that simple and that complex, right? Instead of going into the echo chamber of our own minds where we simply magnify our anxiety, Because God is near, instead we take those thoughts, those conversations we have with ourselves, and we have them with God. And we invite God into those conversations, which changes the nature of the conversation, right? Today we're going to look at one little phrase that is buried in the sentence about prayer. And it's that little phrase with thanksgiving. If I am going to conquer anxiety in my life, I need to not only remind myself continually that God is near, 
that God is for me, that his coming is soon, and that this world is not all there is. I need to also pray about everything. I need to have a conversation with God. I need to, in that conversation, give thanks. All right, I first discovered these verses as a young believer, and I was pretty excited about them um, because I thought, man, here's a, here's a, here's a promise that uh, I need. As a young guy that was, that was in, in many ways assaulted by anxiety, uh, and as my life became more complex, the anxiety increased. And so I grabbed these verses, and I tried to work them like a formula. You know what I'm saying? Like if I do A plus B, it equals C, right? So if I know God is near and I pray and I give thanks, that equals peace that surpasses understanding, right? And so I would work it like a formula, now, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, God doesn't give us magic formulas in the Bible. You're not going to find them. You're not going to find A plus B always equals C. See, God doesn't give us formulas. He gives us himself. He doesn't give us formulas. He gives us relationships. Formulas are things we want to work so that we have control. Relationships are way more beneficial, way more enriching, but also way more complex. God gives us himself, and, and so it's not a formula Um, And so if you try to work this like a formula, you're going to end up missing the very thing he's talking about. You're going to end up giving God a list of things you should be thankful for. So at one point in my life, we had a a white Lumina. Um, It was toward the end of its lifespan. Cars have these weird lifespans, right? In the beginning, you're all excited. They're new. They smell good. And at the end, they're old and they really stink, right? So the Lumina was getting toward the end of its lifespan, but, but so was my bank account. And so we were not able to replace it, right? We were, we were extending the life of this car well beyond the extent it should have gone. And, uh, and one day I was driving that Lumina. And um, here's the thing. That Lumina had a big dent on the driver's side, front fender, right above the front wheel. My kids knew where that dent came from because it came from me. I was taking them to school one day, and, and, and I pulled out onto our street to drive them, and that car just died. And there were the mysterious electrical problems in those cars. Those are the worst kinds of problems. Electric, you can't track them down. You can't figure out what's... And they hit at the worst times, right? So, so I got to get them to school. I got to get to work. The car dies. I click, click, click. I know it's not the battery. Battery's fine. I'm like, Lord, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on, right? Anxiety starts flooding my heart. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Philippians 4, 5, and 6. All right, Lord, you're here. You're not away. You see this, right? I need you to fix my car. Click, click, click. All right, wait, 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 wait. With Thanksgiving. All right, thank you for my family. Thank you for my kids who are laughing at me right now because they like being late to school. Thank you for, for, I don't know, thank you for my job, and, and, and thank you for Jesus. All right, fix my car, right? Click, 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 click. doesn't work, right? My anxiety level is climbing. I get out of the car. I think that's going to help. I start pacing because that's going to help solve the problem. I try praying half a prayer. I don't I just, I just, I kick the car. Big dent in the front fender. My kids are like (laughs) wide-eyed. 
And from that point forward, they like to remind me where that dent came from. Here's the thing, you guys. Um, I was trying to work a formula, and it didn't work. Is that because the promise isn't true? Is that because if I try to do this, it's not actually going to work? No, no, it's because I was misusing it. I was giving God a list of things that I should have been thankful for. But here's the thing, it doesn't say give God that list. It says make your requests with thanksgiving, with an attitude of gratitude. Not just with a list of things I should be thankful for, but with an attitude that is, in fact, deeply expressive and experiencing gratitude. It isn't something that you do as much as something you experience. It's the difference between giving thanks and feeling thankful. And if we're honest, doesn't this make it way more challenging? Isn't it easier to give a list of things that I should be thankful for? It's quick, it's clean, it's easy. But to actually experience gratitude, that's, that's a challenge, especially if you're in the middle of stress. Especially if anxiety is kicking in. Which is why we need to fight for gratitude every day, and not just when things go wrong. That's why we need to be preparing our hearts to find a posture of gratitude every day so that when things go wrong, the posture isn't alien and foreign to us. Here's the thing. The verse says very clearly that we are to give thanks, right? You're going to bring your prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. How often? In what? At all times, right? In all things. What does it say? In everything, right? Say it with me. In everything, right? Everything. What's excluded from that? Nothing. That's really bad news. I mean, it just is, right? Because that's really, really hard. If you want gratitude to protect your heart when anxiety hits, you need to foster gratitude in your heart before anxiety shows up. You can't just turn on the gratitude cycle of your heart when something goes wrong, right? The anxiety hits, and you're like, gratitude button, right? And your heart's like, no, I'm already on the spin cycle. Sorry. That's not slowing down right? So what that means is that we need to have daily habits of gratitude. The Bible says that gratitude is essential, essential for your well-being. Now, it's interesting that there's a lot of psychological research out there that says the same thing. Uh, This week, I, I was doing a little bit of research, so I looked at some current psychological journals for studies on gratitude. There were quite a few. And what's interesting is that every single one of them praise the benefits of gratitude. You're going to end up with things like this, right? They say that it improves your personal sense of well-being. That somebody who has regular habits of gratitude in their lives are more content. They feel better about themselves. They feel better about their worlds. They just have a greater sense of well-being. It goes on and says that it improves social bonds. That's a good way of simply saying that it makes your relationships better. People who are grateful are better friends. People who are grateful are better spouses. People who are grateful are better parents. People who are grateful are are just better in relationships with others. Gratitude makes you more resilient. I love that word. Over the last 
four years especially, I've come to love that word. It's a powerful image, right? When you stretch a rubber band all the way out, resiliency is what allows it to bounce back. But when that rubber band gets stretched all the way out and it no longer bounces back, it's lost its resiliency. I know what that feels like. When you're stretched to your limit and no matter how many breaks you take, no matter how many good meals you have, no matter how many vacations you take, you're not bouncing back. Gratitude increases resiliency. It allows you to recover from stress more quickly. It allows you to bounce back from hard things more in a more healthy way, right? In addition to that, gratitude makes you more patient with people. <laughs> Grateful people see people. Ungrateful people see problems. Grateful people are more pleasant on the road because they see people and not just objects that are in their way. Grateful people are more pleasant when um, your kids are acting like little hellions in the grocery store and you're looking around thinking, is there anybody here that relates to me right now? Grateful people do, right? Grateful people are, are just more patient. They're more patient with the shortcomings of others, with the failures of others, with, with problems that go wrong, with things that, that are stressors in their lives. Gratitude increases your patience. One interesting study said that gratitude is one of the best weapons to fight entitlement in our hearts. Now, in the church, as somebody who leads in the church, the church circles, we've been concerned about entitlement in our culture for a long time because it's produced this thing called consumer Christianity. Consumer Christianity is one of the worst things that has ever developed in the Christian church because consumer Christianity means that people show up with certain levels of entitlement. They, they believe they're entitled to a certain level of, of a worship experience, and they're entitled to a certain level of preaching experience. They're entitled to a certain kind of coffee, and they're entitled to a certain kind of seating space, and they're entitled to a certain kind of... And, and when they don't get what they're entitled to, they move on to where they can find that better experience. The problem is they end up becoming... Um, the, uh, the transfer people. They just move around because they're always going to find something they believe they're entitled to that's not being met wherever they're going. And you know what that does? It undercuts any church's ability to actually create a discipleship culture, a culture in which people are actually growing in grace, a culture in which people are actually moving into relationship with each other and, and learning how to have hard conversations but grace-filled conversations. Consumer Christianity undercuts genuine discipleship and produces a very shallow experience of the benefits of grace, right? So in the church, we've been very concerned with entitlement, but secular psychological researchers are just as concerned. One of the primary factors that in, is increasing our national experience of anxiety is our national experience of entitlement. Now, entitlement, according to research, is characterized by exaggerated feelings of deservedness and superiority. So people who are entitled... us. People who are entitled, entitled believe they deserve better than they've got. I deserve better than this experience. I deserve better than this car. I deserve better than this house. I deserve better. I deserve better. Not only that, they're exaggerated senses of superiority. I deserve better than you. So I might be content with my situation until I see yours. And then I think, wait a minute. I deserve better than you. Now, we don't put those thoughts actually in our heads because we don't like to think of ourselves as being that arrogant. But they're in the back of our minds. 
When we see somebody getting a blessing that we think we deserve, when we see somebody getting a promotion that we want for ourselves, when we see somebody getting attention that we crave for ourselves, that entitlement kicks in. I deserve better, and I deserve better than you. Here's the thing. The irony is this. An entitled person really thinks that the solution to their anxiety is getting what they want. If I could just get what I believe I'm entitled to, then the anxiety would pass. We all know that's wrong, don't we? Because as soon as you get what you thought you deserved, guess what you start thinking? I deserve something else. See, entitled people never stop feeling entitled. So it's a cycle in which we want and we get, which triggers us to want and get and want and get. This is the problem of our culture, you guys, not just our churches, and modern psychological researchers have identified this as one of the cultural crises that is feeding our national obsession with anxiety. See, what's absent from this research, though, is a clear path for fostering gratitude in our hearts, fostering gratitude in our daily lives. So in the research, they gave suggestions, things like, Um, think about how much better you have it than other people, right? Those little Facebook memes that pop up and they show some horrible living condition and they say something like, there is somebody who is dying to have your life. And you're like, oh, yeah, I have it better than somebody. So I should be content. You're right, man. That guy didn't even have a house and I'm I got a house. That guy doesn't even have food. I, I have food. The, see, the problem with that is, is it might give a short-term relief to the driving anxiety of entitlement, but it will not give long-term freedom because it's still comparative. And for every person you can compare yourself to that has it worse than you, you're going to find 10 that you can compare yourself to that have it better than you. Entitlement doesn't get turned off by moving into a different form of comparison, it only gets fueled. They went on, they said things like, okay, so if you want to battle entitlement in your life, remember, you are special. I love that. You are a unique snowflake. (laughs) But so is everyone else. Literally, that was in, remember that you are special, unique. And so is everyone else. All right, that might be helpful to put unhealthy pride on check, right? But it doesn't remove the pride. It might temporarily give relief, but it's not going to bring a solution. So how do we actually grow in gratitude, you guys? How do we actually foster a deep heart attitude of gratitude? All right, this is where I believe the gospel gives us a much more powerful and satisfying answer than the answers that are coming from the world. Because here's the thing, you guys, listen to me. You grow grateful as you experience grace. You grow grateful as you experience grace. The only way to grow in a true and deep experience of gratitude is when your heart is responding to grace. The word thankfulness, the Greek word, it says with thankfulness, the Greek word is eucharistia, 
If you have a Catholic background, that word may sound familiar because they call communion the Eucharist. Right? That comes from a passage where it says that Jesus gave thanks at the Last Supper. He broke the bread, and with thanksgiving, he, he gave the cup. Right? With Eucharistia, he gave the cup, and so it's called the Eucharist. Right? It simply means a, a thankfulness. Right? The root of that word is the Greek word charis. Eucharistia, charis, is the word right at the heart of it. You're like, Steve, where is this going? This is where it's going. The word charis is the Greek word for grace. And what that means is that grace is at the heart of thankfulness. Grace is the most powerful force in human existence. It is more powerful than money. It is more powerful than fame. It is more powerful than unified political energy. It is even more powerful than greed. And hate. You know why? Because grace is love. But not just the feelings of affection. You know, like when your spouse does the dishes and you didn't expect it, and you're like, I feel loved right now. I feel warmed by that. That's a good feeling. Right? Not just when your best friend pops by because they know you've had a long day and you have a long evening ahead of you, and so your friend just popped by to to, to spend a, a few minutes with you to encourage you, right? That kind of love is awesome right? But that's a responding love. That's the kind of love that responds when it sees something that's lovely. That's the kind of love that responds when, when it says, uh, that is, is lovable, so therefore I feel loved, right? Here's the thing. Grace is not responding love. Grace is initiating love. Grace is love that is freely given at the expense of the giver. It's not given because it's provoked, Grace is not love that looks at something and says, well, that's lovely. I love it. Grace looks at something and says, I choose to love it, regardless of how it makes me feel. Grace isn't given because the recipient deserves it. It's given because the giver is so generous that they choose to give it in spite of the recipient. One of the uh, acronyms for grace or a definition of grace I really like um, is where you just take the, the, the letters, G-R-A-C-E, and that is an acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. It's a great definition for biblical grace. God choosing to love us, to lavish on us the riches that come from his love and, and from Christ, but those riches come at an expense, right? They come from Christ. Another definition for grace is unmerited favor. When God has favor for us, not because we merit it or deserve it or earn it, because he chooses to extend it, right? And because we didn't earn it, we can't lose it. Because we didn't buy it with our good behavior, we can't lose it with our bad behavior. Because we didn't buy it with our loveliness, we can't lose it with our unloveliness. Grace. Grace is the most powerful, the most beautiful expression of love the universe has ever known. Because it is the force of new beginnings. It is the power of resurrection. To take something that is dead and unable to help itself and to imbibe it with life and give it a new future. 
So you guys, at the heart of gratitude is a deep experience of grace. When we experience grace, when we see grace, like really see grace, when we are in awe of God's generosity to us, we become grateful. We become grateful. What do we do when someone does something surprising and remarkable in a loving way for us? What do we do? What do we do when a police officer or a fireman risk their lives to deliver our child safely back to us? What do we, what do, we do when, when, when somebody makes a great sacrifice that we didn't ask for, didn't expect, and couldn't deserve, but they did it for us? What do, what do we do for them? Do we like, hey, here, can I give you a five? Come on, take it. Right? No, what do, we, what do we do? What is the most powerful way we can respond in that moment? Two simple words. Thank you. Am I, am I wrong? Like in that moment, that is the most powerful thing you can say. Because anything else seems like it diminishes their sacrifice. It diminishes your gratitude. To try to put a monetary value on it? Thank you. It's an expression of humility. It's an expression of one who has been blessed, who simply wants to bless the blesser. Thank you. Gratitude flows from an experience of grace. When you see how much God has loved you, that He sent His Son to die in your place to pay the debt you owed for your cosmic rebellion against the Creator of all things, when you see that the God of the universe, the one who was offended, chose not to stay offended, but instead took the place of the offender, that he died in your place to pay a debt you could never pay, to solve a problem you could never solve, when you really see and receive that grace, you will be moved to say thank you. You will actually experience gratitude. And in that gratitude, your heart will be freed to humility. And in that gratitude, your heart will be freed from trying to perform and pretend and and do the dance of of moral behavior. In that moment, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the one who blessed you and loved you and gave for you. Your vision isn't filled with what you've done to earn it. Your vision is filled with what he's done to give it. And you're free to stop saying I, 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 me, me, me. And to actually simply say, thank you. Thank you. A deep experience of grace will awaken within you a deep experience of gratitude. All right, so this is my theory, you guys. I can't necessarily prove it, but I can speak from my own experience, and it's this. I think our hearts only have room for one thing. You're either going to allow your anxiety to drive out your gratitude or you're going to foster a heart of gratitude that will drive out your anxiety. So the problem with my car example, (laughs) I wasn't aware. It was true, right? I was no less loved in that moment. God was no less near to bless in that moment, but I wasn't aware of his presence to bless. I wasn't amazed at the grace he had demonstrated to me. I knew it, but I wasn't seeing it. I was not deeply experiencing the grace of God. And so I wasn't able to experience the freedom of gratitude. 
So when I prayed, my words were just verbal anxiety. My words simply amplified my anxiety because they were an expression of my anxiety. You guys, this is why we need to foster a daily fight for an experience of grace so that we can grow in our daily experience of gratitude. So that when stress hits, I'm in a better position to experience gratitude in the stress. So you guys, this is hard. <laughs> this is so hard. Isn't it? It really is, because it feels so counterintuitive. See, when stress kicks in, what is it It's telling you? Like, stress is urgency, and it's coming in, and it's saying, you better do something. You better say something. You better solve something. Get up and move, right? That's why I had to get out of my car. That's why I had to pace. Because the anxiety was building up, and the anxiety is all urgency to do, to solve, to fix. But in that moment, when stress kicks in, the best thing I can do is discipline my heart and simply enter back into my Father's presence to be loved, to remind myself that God is near, that He loves me, that He's for me, that my God, my God gave His Son for me. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave the ultimate gift. And because of that, I can rest. Because of that, I don't have to fix my own problems. Because of that, I don't have to have all the solutions. Because of that, I don't always have to take action. It's not that I become passive. It's that I become very, very active in leading my heart to an experience of grace. Waiting on the Lord is one of the most difficult challenges in the Christian life because it feels like passivity. But it is not. It is active and faith-driven. In that moment, I need to lead my heart back into the presence of my loving Father so I can trust Him because He has paid a price I couldn't pay and He solved the the problem I couldn't solve, man. And, And the price He paid to do it, I can't even imagine. And here's the thing, when I can get my heart back to that place where I'm actually once again amazed by grace and starting to experience gratitude, when I can get my heart to that place, then I can actually make my requests known to God. In that place, then I can say, Lord, this, this, is, this is where I need you to step in. Father, Abba, the one who loves me, will you take care of this? Will you step in and do what I can't do? Will you step in and comfort where I can't comfort? Will you step in and solve where I can't solve? Will will you be God? The God who is near, the God who blesses where I can't? And in that place, I stop asking why. Why me? Why now? Why not that guy down the street who's so rude? Why why me? See, what's happening is it's diffusing the entitlement of my heart. It allows me to, to 
shut that voice down that is constantly saying, I deserve better, I deserve better, I deserve better. And instead of asking why, which is a demand, instead of asking why, which is an accusation against God, instead of asking why, which only fuels the anxiety of my heart because I can't control the God I'm trying to control, instead of asking why, I can just ask. You see the beautiful simplicity of simply coming to your heavenly Father, your Abba, just to ask. Because you trust his heart, you can trust his hand. So you just ask. You bring your prayer and petition, Lord, this is where I want you to step in. This is what I want you to do. And behind that is a a mountain of trust because he's proven himself trustworthy. And so you come to him. You don't even have to say it. There's already an assumption, Lord, I want you to step in in this way. But I trust you in any way you step in. You will tell a better story for my life than I will tell for myself. You will do what I don't understand to accomplish what I can't for myself. There's trust that comes from an experience of grace that frees our hearts to gratitude. And in that place, you'll start experiencing peace. A supernatural peace. A peace that doesn't come from reasonable and understandable sources. Because there's security in your life, or things aren't going wrong, or because your monetary plans are going well. That your peace comes not from external sources, but the internal presence of the love of God. And that's when gratitude becomes a force multiplier for the gospel in our lives. That's when gratitude magnifies the strength of the gospel in our lives. All right, I want to give you a final illustration that illustrates this much better than I can. Corey Ten Boom wrote a book called The Hiding Place. Some of you have heard of her. Her family was incredible. Her family has an incredible story of heroic love in the face of indescribable brutality, ignorance, and hatred. She's the only one that survived in her family to tell the tale. She was the daughter of Caspar Ten Boom, who was a Christian who took in Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland. He and his family were arrested in 1944 because they had a hiding place in their home. Casper died 10 days later in his prison cell. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to a number of intern uh, camps, finally ended up at Ravensbrook. If you know anything about the Holocaust, you know, Raven's book was one of the most notorious concentration camps in Germany. The conditions in their barracks were horrid. It was filled with beds, but there were more people than beds, and so there was straw strewn everywhere. Most of them slept in the straw. And because of that, there was a thick infestation of fleas in the barracks. The fleas lived in the straw. And so they were just everywhere. So anytime you were in the room, you were being feasted on. Now, Corey Ten Boom recounts a specific incident where she was overwhelmed. And she was complaining to her sister, Betsy. 
And she says that Betsy prayed and then pointed pointed her to a passage that they had read together in the Bible just that morning. It was a passage that says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Betsy was sure that this passage was the answer to their prayer. So Corey recounts the scene as follows. Betsy said, Can we start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks? I stared at her, and then around me, at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, such as being assigned here together, she said. I bit my lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus, thank you. Such as what you're holding in your hands. And I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close, that means many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, cramped, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way. Even God can make me grateful for the fleas. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between piers and bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. Corey and Betsy suffered incredible humiliation in that place. They endured physical abuse, but they started having a daily Bible study in their barracks. And it grew. And soon there was a kind of revival breaking out in the camp among the imprisoned women. But the guards never interfered. You know why? This was an offense punishable by death. And they would have been glad to enforce it. But they wouldn't go in there because of the fleas. See, God took what seemed like a curse. And he used it for a blessing. And Betsy was a good friend to Corey. In that moment, she helped her sister wake up to an experience of God's grace. And in waking up to an experience of God's grace, it woke her heart up to the experience of gratitude. See, a deep experience of grace unleashed the power of gratitude in their hearts. Think about this, you guys. That place was designed not just to break their bodies, but to break their spirits. That place was designed not just to destroy them physically, but to rob them of their humanity. And in that place, they experienced joy. A joy that surpasses all understanding. Because it does not come from any understandable place. Because it came from within not from their circumstances. The Ten Boom sisters experienced the force multiplier of gratitude. And the Nazis couldn't attack them there. 
the enemy had no hold on them there. And instead of experiencing paralyzing anxiety and spirits weighed down with chronic sadness because of this nagging sense of entitlement, they had joy. They had a desire to put the needs of others above their own. They had a deep and powerful experience of the nearness of God. And that gave them greater gratitude and even peace in a place where neither made sense. Now I want to make one note. If the Ten Boom sisters had been able to leave that place, do you think they would have? Yes. Gratitude is not passivity. Gratitude does not mean that we simply yield ourselves to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. If you're in an abusive relationship, if you're in an abusive job site, if somebody is belittling you and trying to hold you captive through that belittlement, the grace you experience might be the very strength you need to actually step out of that circumstance. Thankfulness does not equal passivity. So you can be thankful and look around and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to change? In fact, right now, some of you might need to just give thanks. God, thank you for this sermon that's going to give me the freedom and the boldness to step out of an abusive relationship. Give thanks in all things. That doesn't mean we become passive in all things. But it does mean that we yield to the hand of God. We change the things we can change, and we surrender to him the things that we can't. A deep experience of grace frees our hearts to gratitude, and in gratitude we experience a peace that's unexplainable. Let's be a people deeply rooted in grace so that we can grow in gratitude. All right, as we close, I want to do something that that, uh, at Trailhead we've done in the past. It's a little bit weird, and you might be a little bit weirded out by it, but I'm all right with that. Um, I'm going to utter a blessing over you, and, and you can participate. If you choose, if not... That's up to you. But this is how we do it. We cup our hands, just like this. We cup our hands, just like this. Because that allows us to receive the blessing. It's a physical way of simply saying this blessing is for me. I speak the blessing over you, and in this blessing, it's not simply you receiving, it's you praying. It's you interacting with the words I speak and you interacting with the God that I speak of. And at the end of the blessing... We take what we've cupped and we pour it over our heads and we simply say, all of God's people said, amen. All right? So let's cup our hands. You don't have to, but go ahead and cup your hands and I I would recommend you just put your gaze down so that you're not distracted. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Jesus died for you and rose again. Receive that love. He took your guilt. He bore your shame that you might be clothed in his dignity. Receive that love. You owed a debt so large that all of eternity was too long. It would not be long enough to pay it off. But he paid that debt for you. Receive that love. He rose again so that you could have a new name, a new identity, a new future, not rooted in who you were, 
or who others said you were or what you've done or what others have done to you, but a new future defined by the resurrection of Christ. Receive that love. Jesus now calls you friend. God now calls you child. And you are invited into the warmth and the safety of his love. Receive that love. God, thank you. We can give you nothing in return worth what you have given us. And we want to taste deeply of this grace so that we can be transformed by gratitude. We receive your love. And all God's people said, Amen. Take a few moments and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.